Welcome, everybody. This is episode five of the Coaches Collective. I'm Chris Maleo here with the legendary Dan Casey and, and Derek Perkins. Uh, today's guest is Phil Longo, the offensive coordinator at University of North Carolina. Uh, Coach Longo has had an incredible run as the OC at UNC. This year, they were second in the ACC at points per game at 41.7 uh, per rushing yards per game. They were second as well at 235.8. And uh, they left the world in awe in some of their games with what they were doing offensively and some of the production that they put up. Uh, we're excited to have them. So, Coach uh, Coach Longo, welcome. Well, I appreciate the invite. I'm looking forward to chat with you guys. Absolutely. Well, we want to just get right into it and talk to you a little bit about your journey. I think um, a lot of it is going to resonate with with our listeners. You know, you are, uh, as I like to say, it took you your whole life to become an overnight success. You know, we'll talk about you started in high school in New Jersey. Uh, where I'm from is, you know, the head coach of Parsippany Hills. You go to William Patterson, uh, LaSalle, uh, Minnesota Duluth, Southern Illinois, Youngstown State, Slippery Rock, Sam Houston, Ole Miss, now UNC. I mean, what a journey. Um, talk to our guys a little bit about this, you know, and, and what this journey was like for you and, and some of the sacrifices and commitment that you've had to make to, to be able to be where you are. So, I, you know, usually when, when people bring up the, the whole trail, the first thing that comes to my mind is how much uh, in the beginning uh, I thought during the first 10 or 12 years of my career, I'll be going on year 32 here in September. And it, it was about a dozen years where I kept thinking to myself, you know, man, I've been a lot of places. And, you know, because I'll be two years here, three years there, one year there. Little did I know that that's really the norm in this business. Um, but I also didn't realize how advantageous it was because now that I look back, I don't regret any of it. I used to think it looked like you couldn't keep a job, right? You know, you're all these different places that people must not want to keep you. That's how I thought that people would perceive that. And that certainly wasn't the issue. You know, you, you go somewhere and you, and you work your tail off to be successful and you develop relationships and, uh, and I'm bad that way. I, I could be someplace a year and I'm going to cry walking out the office because I'm leaving some memories there. I just, I get attached to every place I've been. So it's hard for me. Um, and, you know, you put everything you have into the players and into the program. And I don't know if that's what everybody does, but that's what I do. So it, it's, it was difficult early on, but we never moved without believing that maybe it was a better step for me when I was single. And then, you know, when you have a family, you always want to do what's best for your family. So now looking back at it, I'd say that all those stops that you mentioned used to make me cringe. And now I had just, I just think about the great memories I have at each one of them. I think about all the wins we had at each one of them. And it's a, that's a whole network of coaches and players that I still keep in touch with. And, I'm hard pressed to go to a state in this country and not, not have somebody I want to go visit, you know? And so that, that has made it a great experience for me. One of the things coach that I, you know, you and I obviously have a relationship a little bit before this podcast, yeah. but one of the things that always resonated with me with you and, and I admired was your willingness to just jump in the car and go visit. And like, you're a football junkie. You love ball. You love learning. Um, you know, talk some about some of that. Cause like you've made some sacrifices, you've gotten in the car from New Jersey and driven down to, you know, at whatever state in the middle of nowhere. Can you kind of share with some of our listeners about what you were able to do and like the commitment that you made to your craft and improving as a coach? You know, it's, I don't really hate talking about this, but I hate talking about it because every time uh, 
Cliff Kingsbury makes fun of me constantly about it. And, and um, it, it really is, you know, here's the, here's the issue with me. My profession is also my hobby. Yeah. So, you know, when we get time off, you, you go spend time with your family. Well, when the family's out of town or the family's at sports practice somewhere or they're in school or they're doing whatever they're doing and we get some, some time away from the actual job in the office, I don't go hunting. I don't go fishing. You know what I mean? I, 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 don't, I don't do that stuff. I, I go watch film. You know, I, I just love doing, I love the sport. I enjoy it as much as I, you know, I work hard at it because I realize it's my job, but that part of it, I think is uh, the reason why I'm always trying to talk to somebody else that's smarter than I am. And there's a lot of those people. So I'm not going to run out in that well anytime soon. And, and uh, you see one little interesting idea on film and if I think it can help us, I want to go see that person. And and I love the Zoom world. I'm fine with that. I, I've had an opportunity to talk to far more high school, college, and pro coaches in a, a one-year span than ever before. But I, I still would rather travel there, get in the room, and look somebody in the eye and get them, wear them down a little bit and get the real answer. You know what I mean? And, and so that's, that's probably the biggest reason. I mean, we drove – I didn't have much money. I had a Toyota 4Runner. I put all my money into that. And uh, and I was just teaching and coaching. I drove down to uh, Kentucky and slept in the car and used the Kentucky field house and the shower when they weren't looking and just hung out there a few days and ate McDonald's for three days. I'm embarrassed to say that. I don't eat that way anymore. But that that was just what you had to do. And, I, you know, I watched some spring ball practice and spent time at a clinic and Tried to wear out Mike Leach, and then I had, had headed home with probably uh, a new offensive philosophy that I, I didn't realize it, but it's it's kind of led me through the last twenty some years. That's awesome. Yeah, Coach, I'm glad you said that. So I spent I spent some time GAing for Cliff there in Lubbock. So I've 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 heard stories of you hanging out in Lubbock, um, and and but I can tell you we studied a ton of your stuff too. So um, don't yeah. don't don't get it twisted. So obviously I'm an area guy at heart. Talk to us about how, um, obviously, you've got those influences, but you do a lot of other things, too, as far as with your, your downhill run game. So what, what over the course of your career, what led you to uh, kind of mesh those, those, those philosophies? I just thought that, uh, you know, Mike Leach told me, told me something a long time ago. He said, uh, and, I, and I believe it firmly, he said, balance is not – 35 runs and 35 passes, you know, balance in, in the air rate philosophy is ball distribution. Yeah. And, and to me, that makes more sense. If I'm trying to defend somebody, I don't care how many times they run it or pass it. What I would love is for them to do just one of those. I would love for them to run the ball 90% of the time because it minimizes my focus in, in terms of what I have to defend. And if somebody's going to throw the ball 90% of the time, then it, it minimizes my focus. And I think you see examples of that all the time. So I've always believed that you need to be able to do both. I've never cared if we ran the ball for 550 yards against Miami or we threw it for 550 against Wake Forest. All I cared about was that we had the ability to take whatever it is the defense has given us. And I know this, anybody in the media that's ever had it, 
uh, been in a press conference with me is rolling their eyes when they hear this because I say take what they give us all the time. Right. And, and it's not the cop-out answer. It's, it is how our offense is built. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think anybody that studies this knows if you're going to drop eight, we're probably running the ball. And if you're going to mm-hmm. stack the box, we're probably going to throw it. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But I, that, I think you need to have the ability to do both at a high level. How much we do one or the other in any one particular game really comes down to what the defense schematically is trying to take away. And, and that, in a nutshell, has been our philosophy. I think the biggest part of the air raid philosophy that um, has always been a part of what we do is providing the receivers with all kinds of freedom in their routes. Yeah. We're going to run and throw to grass. We're not throwing strike points and landmarks. Um, we're not reading defenders. We're, we're progressing through routes. But really, we've taken the same uh, philosophy with regards to chasing space or attacking grass, and we apply it to the run game. Mm-hmm. You know, and in a small microcosm, if I was coaching the running back on how to run inside zone today, I would tell them from the snap to the mesh, I want you to decide if there's a play side crease. Do you have light, A gap, B gap, C gap? If you do, by the time you get to the mesh, hit it. Yep. And if you don't, if they've gapped it all off and there's three defenders and three gaps and there's nothing but color, then we're automatically going to hit it backside. And while you're heading downhill to the backside, you'll find the crease. We're not reading the five tech and the three tech and the shade. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I just like giving the the uh, flexibility to the athlete. We're recruiting these kids because of how special they are athletically. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I want to do is handicap them with more thinking in certain areas of the game where we don't have to. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's just an example, even in the run game where, you know, we're going to try to push the ball to space and we're going to let the athlete decide based on his instinctive decision-making and his athletic ability. And when you lean on that stuff, I don't have to be smarter than the defensive coordinator every week. And, and gosh forbid, if I had to be smarter than that guy, we would have won a lot less games than we did. No, I mean, Coach, that that philosophy, I think, makes so much sense to us, especially at the high school level. You're leaning on those special attributes of the athletes that you have. And one of the things that we did in kind of in preparation for this conversation was we went back and looked at some of your Slippery Rock teams and some of your Sam Houston teams. And one of the things that I really pulled out in watching all those different teams is just how relaxed your quarterbacks seem in the pocket. And that's not just Sam. It's not just um, Jordan Tahamu. It's it's all these guys that have played for you just seem really comfortable and relaxed in the pocket. And one of the things that I really noticed, you know, if you zoom in from a technique standpoint is one of the things that you do with your quarterbacks that doesn't seem like a lot of guys are teaching right now is the back pedal drop as opposed to like turning uh, perpendicular to the line of scrimmage and, and crossing over. Where, where did that come from? And then can you just talk a little bit about why you think your quarterbacks just seem from the outside looking in like they're so comfortable and relaxed in the pocket? Well, in the NFL, it's never been the majority drop. Yeah. But it just seems like through the years, you know, you used to, during the Elway, Bradshaw window, that, that those two eras, you kind of had, uh, you had a lot of guys that would backpedal out even from under center. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that led to all the bloopers that we see where guys are falling on their butt and doing those type of things. But we, we did it because it, it was really based on a study. I was trying to find a way 
I really thought it was interesting to watch Graham Harrell do it when he was at Texas Tech. Um, a lot of Mike's guys had done it. A lot of guys in the NFL had done it. Drew Brees does it on specific plays. And a number of the different quarterbacks do it on, on uh, specific plays. But we were studying the fact that over the years, and this was 20 years ago, but our completion percentage to the backside of the quarterback was always lower. You know, and when you do his hit chart, the completion percentage for a right-hander was always lower uh, predominantly to the left side. Yeah. And if you clock launch time from guys that front out, you know, when they when they turn out and they drop the traditional way. And I'm not saying that's wrong. We just – I wanted to find a way that would enable us to throw and complete the ball at a higher rate like we were doing to the right side. Yeah. And when you clock the launch time – for even a hitch throw out to the right, it's always faster than it is to the left because the footwork and opening the hips takes longer. I also never really was very comfortable with the lack of vision that you have to your backside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that old adage that we're going to look over our shoulder like a pitcher trying to see if somebody's stealing a base. Hey, that's fine. But when in baseball, you have no helmet on. In football, you have a helmet on. And it's really hard to see that angle. And so no matter what we did, the launch time to the backside took a little bit longer. And, and we felt like that had a lot to do with later throws and lower completion percentage. And so we committed to, to working it flat. And I hate using the word backpedal, and I have done that in my own clinic. So I, but because I don't want them backpedaling out of there like corners, we basically, we walk through our drop. And it's funny because the way I introduce it to them is I say, hey, you know what? Walk through it first. Let's not do it full speed. Walk through it and let's get comfortable with it. And then we'll take the next step. And after they get comfortable with it, walking through, I tell them you're done. That's it. We're not, we're really not going to pick up the tempo. Yeah. This is what I want. I just want you to be relaxed and we're going to, we're going to fast walk through this thing and work on setting our feet and throwing all of this stuff to the backside with the same success rate that we have to the play side. Now that doesn't mean it was right. But after doing it for two years, the completion percentage went up almost immediately. Yeah. And so it's always kind of a learning curve for the guys for the first couple of days. How does it feel? Eh. And then in a week or two, they don't ever want to go back. So yeah. it's it's just something that, that we decided to look at. You know, trying that was a little outside the box at the time. Um, that's probably the most valuable thing I've learned from Coach Kingsbury is uh, – he was never afraid to do anything in football that wasn't part of the traditional system. Mm -hmm. He didn't care. You know, and as I sat in the office with him, he said, well, this, they're going to call it a seven, six, nine, you know, on the tight end, you know, it's a seven technique, a six technique and nine. That makes no sense to me. I don't know why you, you work your way all the way down to the tight end. And then because <laughs> I'm drunk coach 50 years ago, said it the wrong way. We all write it that way now. Yeah. That stuff doesn't make sense. All I care about is what makes sense to the players, what makes it easier for the players. And that's really something that kind of resonated with me and talking with him. He he would do anything. He'd run around any way possible that meant they were going to be more successful at it. Yeah. And so I kind of gravitated to talking to him about his, his game plan plays because I really loved his approach and I loved the fact that he didn't care about being confined by the box that football has drawn for so many people. And that has been a benefit for us because now it really doesn't matter how anybody else is doing anything. 
it's it's no lack of respect for what they're doing. Right. But if it's not working for us, I think we're we're very open to trying something that maybe nobody else did or many people don't do a lot if it's going to work for our players. If that makes sense to you. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I spent a little bit of time up at spring practice. This was, you know, before the shutdown. And that was one thing I pulled away and, and gave to our kids at, at the school I'm at here in Raleigh. And immediately, um, it just made sense to them. It felt good to them. And so it's little things like that, like you said, that if you can present something that um, that is a win for your kids, like it's a no brainer. And so I, I really appreciate that approach. And I think a lot of high school guys have felt that for sure. Well, I would, I would tell you too, that the, the, um, I would credit Coach Leach with the relaxed approach to coaching the quarterbacks. And it's funny that you asked me that, honestly, because yesterday in our quarterback meeting with my younger guys, I meet with the quarterbacks separately most of the time because they're all on a different educational level. It's like this guy is in just math 101, the other one's in algebra, the next one's in, you know what I mean? So they're all on a different level, and it's hard to to talk to – Sam, who's so progressive and, and so far down the road with regards to his knowledge base, when I'm developing the guy that's midway there and Jacoby Criswell, as opposed to Jefferson Boaz and Drake May, who are just getting here. Yeah. So I try to meet with them individually. It's more, it takes more time, but I mean, that's my job. So we just, we just take more time and meet individually. But sitting in an office watching Mike coach Cliff Kingsbury, Graham Harrell, and and B.J. Simons and all the guys that he had with with uh, a cup of coffee and as as so relaxed, I thought he was going to fall asleep, <laughs> you know. And and what happened was the whole culture in the room was extremely relaxed with the quarterbacks. Yeah, you know, and you're looking at four off the edge from the boundary, major problem creates a sense of urgency, and he's like, ah, you know, listen, just look, just flip it out here, and, and we're good. You know, and everything is so nonchalant with him. Yeah. Uh, but what happened is that whole approach resonates with his quarterbacks. And so what happens is they kind of develop the same approach to answering problems. And it was one of the things I noticed when I was younger and I used to go and visit and watch all his practices and study the offense. And so now I would say if I coach the tight ends, the running backs, the receivers, the O-line, I would be standing up in my meetings. I would be a little bit louder. I would coach explosively the same way I would on the field yeah. and the same way I would want them to play. But my quarterback meeting is, is a cup of coffee, a little country or a little reggae. My feet are always up on the table. My quarterbacks can eat and drink, do whatever they want there. As long as we're getting what we need to get done in the meeting done. Yeah. But it goes such a long way to, um, making the point for our guys that it's imperative that we don't react emotionally to everything that goes on out there. Yeah. And, and so hopefully that's why so many of them seem relaxed. I, I just think that lends to us being more consistent from a play to play basis. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. No. Coach, Coach King definitely took that relaxed approach, but something I think that he did a really good job of and, and you do as well. And last week we, we had Brian Kide on and he, something that he said that really stood out to us was simplicity equals execution. Um, and I, just being at Tech and watching Coach King, he, he was relaxed when he needed to be, but he made things really simple. I know you guys do too. We've heard you talk about it. How do you, how do you, how do you go about simplifying things just as you're just 
as the offensive coordinator? Um, there's a few. I have to police myself because, you know, I, I said the job is my hobby, right? So what happens is the playbook at home here continues to get bigger. Right. We're constantly adding stuff. Right. But at the office, I will not budge. If we add a concept, past concept, let's say, we have got to be able to execute that concept against every coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that immediately will eliminate 80% of the plays in the sport of football. Yeah. I, I don't want to have to find cover two to run my cover two beater. And then they're out there in man free. And what do I do? You know, and tempo is also part of what we do. So we try to build the answers into the plays and it's my job to teach the quarterbacks how to find the right answer. And then it's their job to go execute attacking it. And, and, I think on Saturday, I don't really do a lot of coaching on Saturday. I do a lot of play calling. I do a lot of defensive study. I don't do a lot of quarterback coaching. I mean, the only thing I really ever continually harass Sam about is, or any of the quarterbacks, is, you know, to continue to take every play for its own world. Yeah. You know, we're all, we're human beings. And so what happens is you run a play five times. And you can complete the hitch for the first five times. I don't want us to pre-decide that we're going to throw it the sixth time because then the corner jumps it and, and, and we get rocked or they pick it. Mm. So I, you want every play to be its own world. And, and that takes a lot of discipline. Yeah, It's simple, but it takes a lot of discipline to do that for 75 or 80 straight plays in a ball game. And so that's really the only thing I continually remind Sam or any of the quarterbacks about we, we do more of the X's nose and, and the mental part of it during the week. And by Friday, if there's something that the starting quarterback is not comfortable with as much as I may love it, we scratch. Yeah. And it, it's gone because if he's not comfortable with it, we're not going to succeed with it. Right. You know, and then, you, then what's really fun is with a guy like Sam Howell, who's, so far down the line now with his understanding of the game, he doesn't come in and I give him the game plan. He comes in and we game plan together. I love it. We talk about it together. Mm-hmm. And because I, I have no ego with regards to what we run. I, you know, the coaches all have great input and, and the quarterbacks, the intelligent ones or the more advanced ones, they have great input. Even if a receiver, t- if a receiver tells me during the game, I want their input. Yeah. Coach the post, I can't get inside on the post, but you know, I, I can hit them on, a, on an out and up or uh, give me a return route. Or, I'm going to roll with what they're telling me because they're out there playing. Yeah. And if I know that they're educated and they're informed with regards to what they're talking about, I'm going to take their feedback all game because they have the best seat in the house. So there's no ego with regards to what we do as long as it's, it's a, an educated uh, piece of input. I just want to win, and if the guys can help us do that, then it, it, it gives them more uh, stake in what we're doing on Saturday. Right. Yeah, we you know we we had an interesting interview last week, or we interviewed Brian Kite, um, you know, and he he spoke a little bit about kind of that relationship with coaches and players, and I think that speaks you know volumes about what you guys are doing there, the culture that you've established, that you can communicate on that level and. Uh, intense situations and moments that matter, you know, on game day where you have a level of trust in your players and they have it in you that when they communicate information to you, they're going to, it's going to get returned appropriately. But can you talk a little bit about the culture at UNC? I mean, you guys, you know, UNC hires Mac Brown. He's 68 years old. He's been out of the game for five years. You know, I mean, it's, 
I think there were a lot of people who raised their eyebrow when it was, when it first happened. Um, talk a little bit about the culture and the leadership of coach Brown and then how that's impacted you as a coach. Uh, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I get choked up when I talk about coach Brown mm. because um, this culture that we have is all macro. You know, he, he is, uh, and I've said this before, we sit in a staff meeting with him uh, and, and we have a particular obstacle we need to overcome or something that we need to develop a strategy for. You know, in this case, a lot of that had to do with the pandemic this last year, but in a non-pandemic year, you're, you know, you're talking about player development and team discipline and, uh, you know, X's and O's development and, and practice tempo. You're talking about all the things that go into running a program. So whatever the individual topic is, when we sit in on a meeting with him, He's done it for so long and he's done it at a high level for so long and he's been successful at it for so long that he has a template for just about every situation yeah. that you could you could experience. And he'll still say, who has some suggestions or has some input? And if it's not educated, he's going to look at you funny. But if, if you have some legitimate input that has some research behind it and some validity behind it, He's going to take it and consider it. And if it's better than something that he's doing, he takes it. And then that's how you, we get better as a program every day. And then in the rare instances where maybe nobody in the room, you know, uh, has an experience with a particular situation, then we all have the confidence in the fact that he already has a plan for this. So if we don't have input or we don't have a way to improve on what, what coach is already doing, then the plan is he's got the plan. It's there. And so you always leave the office with a lot of confidence. And then on the other side, I will tell you that, uh, and as, as simple and as corny and as uh, elementary as this sounds, the greatest way to develop, and I believe this more now after two years of being with Mac than ever before, the greatest way to develop a relationship with your players where they believe that you're sincere and they believe that you're honest and they believe that you care about them is for those three things simply to just be true. I mean, it's life is not difficult. Exactly. If you're honest with the players and they're not they're you're not feeding them any BS, then they, they learn after a while that you're being straight with them. If you're legitimately sincere about them, when you ask them how their day is, and it's not just rhetoric, then they learn that over time. And if you constantly put their well-being ahead of your own, uh, it, it just starts to resonate with the guys and they they start to really believe because it's true that they're the priority and that they're actually going to have a relationship with you far beyond their graduation date. And that's how Mac is to the staff. That's how he is to the team. And then in, in, in turn, we do that with the players. And I know everybody says it, and I know it's it's uh, it's part of the presentation for every head coach, but that's legitimately what the culture is like in our building, and our kids know it. And I think there's a lot more team unity and there's a lot more continuity in our building than maybe any other place that I've ever been. Mm, man, that's awesome. Hey, well, I want to go back to, you know, some of my personal experience having uh, been on campus there a couple times and and just kind of had a bird's eye view of things watching you guys practice. One thing that stood out to me, and you know, I'm sure there are other programs doing it, but it, it was kind of the first time I had seen it um, live and in person was that you guys actually right in the middle of spring practice 
have a halftime break where you're giving kids snacks, getting them hydrated, you know, coaches are gathering around kind of breaking things down. Where did that come from? Where did that idea to have a halftime of practice come from? You know, it was really uh, an attempt, uh, I think really that originated from Coach Brown, but it was an attempt by our staff to uh, make practice a lot like the game. And, you know, Coach continually stresses with us all the different points that he thinks are the most vital to uh, winning the game. Anything that has a high correlation to winning, he's stressing. You know, and he says all the time, and it sounds cliche, but he said it, if, it, if it doesn't affect winning on Saturday, it's a rat turd. I don't care about it. <laughs> you take care of it. You put out that fire. You handle it. Only thing I want you to bring me is what's going to affect recruiting, which ultimately is going to affect our overall production on Saturday. And and, and I, I feel the same way. And so he, want, he wants practice to mirror – as closely as possible, again, from a tempo standpoint, an intensity standpoint, we hold up two fingers when it's the beginning of the second quarter. We have a halftime that only lasts five minutes. My, my, it's my daughter's favorite part of practice. She comes to practice every day, and she's either doing the water or handing out food or she's moving bags or, or, or what have you. But And, and that alone is a, a whole different approach my family is at every practice for the most part. And Mac is great with that. My daughter will spend eight hours in the office and she'll do the four hour process in the morning for practice. And then she'll file and do some different things for me in the afternoon and deliver things to the coaches. And Mac is awesome with all of that. And it doesn't take away from my job. It just allows me to spend time with my family while I'm doing it. Wow. But we hold up four fingers going into the fourth quarter of practice and he wants the fourth quarter to be as effective in practice as it is in the beginning. And then that's really what we want out of the game. And so it's, it was a very good attempt. And I think it's definitely translated for the players to different parts of the ball game that we, we identify in practice. Absolutely. That's good stuff, coach. Coach, we always finish out every episode just with, with this same question. And it's the, the idea and it's something that we're trying to push here with the coaches collective is the fact that one co- coaching the, the profession's tough and, and you move a lot, you work a ton of hours, but the good guys, they, they, they find a way to marry all that. And they're still a good coach. They still work really hard and they're still good husbands and fathers and family guys. So you briefly touched on it, but how do you, how, how are you intentional about marrying those things? Um, I, I, I firmly believe that my upbringing has a lot to do with it. You know, it's, it's interesting. We get so many players that come to us after a, a year, a two-year, a three-year process of recruiting them, and, and you get to know their families so well and their coaches so well. And, and um, it's interesting to me over the course of 30-plus years now, there are more and more uh, dysfunctional families. There are more and more families with maybe one parent or divorced parents. And, and these kids, I think, on average, grow up with a lot more, uh, a lot less structure maybe, and, and a lot more, far more obstacles to have to overcome or deal with. I think life was simpler. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think life was simpler uh, when I was growing up. 
than it is today for the kids in our country now. And, and then the other thing I would say is uh, kids are, are different in some ways and yet they're the same in others in, in, in that they just really want good people in their life that they can trust and listen to. So that hasn't changed at all. Um, the, other, the other issue is the way it's changed is the fact that they have so much more to overcome. You know, they have, they have so much more to, uh, more of them are reliant on leaning on an honest, good person in their coach to help them with some of the issues that they have in their life. And I really believe, I truly believe that it's part of our responsibility to have a relationship with these guys and model for them what a father is supposed to be like, or a coach is supposed to be like, or a male role model is supposed to be like. And I, I truly understand that I'm supposed to say all those things. And I understand that that's, that's the, the game that some people play, but I say that with a hundred percent sincerity. Um, I, I probably don't have the same influence on all 45 offensive players equally because you spend more time with some than others. You have stronger relationships with some than others. You identify with some more than others, but there's a coach on staff between the 11 or 12 of us that uh, can relate to just about every one of them. And, and you hope that you match them up with the coach that can really help them. And you hope that they have a relationship with a few of those guys beyond graduation. I have told every player that's ever played for me, if you don't believe me now, call me on it 15 or 20 years from now. If, if they gave us great effort when they were here, and they demonstrated that they were a, a good person and they progressed and got better on and off the field during their tenure with us. I take that personally to me. That's, you know, they're, they're, they're doing what I'm asking them to do on the field and off the field as a coordinator every day. Mm -hmm. And, and it, that takes some commitment. And so I just, you know, look, if you need something down the road and you call, and you ask me, and I'm in, I, it's within my power to help you, and it's legal, I'm going to do whatever I can do to try to help that player. Yeah. You know, and, and it comes from my relationship with John Bunting, who was my coach in college, who coincidentally was the head coach here at North Carolina at one point. So it's a smaller world than you think sometimes. But because he had such a drastic impact on my life, maybe the second greatest male role model in my life, second to only my, my pop, I think – I, I sincerely uh, respect and, and understand what kind of impact a coach can have. And so now I would, I would like to be that guy for some of my players, and I try to be. It's not going to happen with all of them, but, but I'm going to help any one of them that has handled themselves the right way. Yeah. Well, Coach, we, we certainly appreciate you and your time. You are a, a well-traveled man and coach who's uh, – who's searched, you know, for knowledge. And it's been impressive to see your journey. We're grateful for the the time that you've given us today. And, and we hope that uh, a lot of what you said resonates with our listeners. So thank you so much for that. Well, I appreciate y'all. You guys do a lot to help our game and I appreciate the time. I, I do.